Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Well, I am here with uh, Dr. John Walton. Uh, Dr. Walton, can you say hi? Hey, everybody. We are both in our offices, and I am on vacation right now when this is airing, and I don't know where Dr. Walton's going to be right now. Uh, but we are with you, and uh, this is a really special opportunity for me. So uh, Dr. Walton first met me when I was 18, believe it or not. I was a wee uh, freshman in his college uh, Old Testament beginning course. Uh, what, I can't remember what it was called. Um, and also knew Marissa, my wife, and, and uh, I have studied with Dr. Walton, who is a professor at Wheaton College in the graduate school and also sometimes in the undergraduate school from when I was 18 until I finished my master's when I was like 25. So Dr. Walton has been super significant in my life. Um, he was my advisor and I have my understanding of the Old Testament in particular has been deeply influenced uh, by who he is as a person. And so he's been really significant just in my life and Marissa's life, but also has been really significant in the kind of global Christian conversation around the Old Testament and his work. Uh, written like a lot of books, almost 35, is it right now? Probably more like around 30. Okay, right around 30. Well, that's a lot of books. Um, but as a sought after speaker and deeply influential scholar, and I am so, uh, it is a privilege that we get to have him join us in this series on Genesis. And I hope in our time in the Pentateuch over the next six years in the summers, maybe we can get you back again. So Dr. Dr. Walton, how would you talk, describe your passion as a Christian and a scholar? What's kind of been your, how would you explain what drives you to study the Old Testament? Why do you do what you do? Well, I've come to understand that the Old Testament as part of the Bible is God's way of communicating to us of helping us to understand his plans and purposes, understanding enough of his person that we can relate to him, although there's so much that we can't penetrate uh, because he's God. But this is sort of the only thing that he's given us uh, that allows us to to get to know him better. So I, I consider that very valuable and a worthwhile uh, way to spend my time and effort. Amen. Well, one of my favorite things about you, Dr. Walton, and just for everyone else watching is uh, Dr. Walton does a lot of really academic stuff and deeply, he's a, he's a profound scholar, while at the same time, he has a huge passion for the church and for communicating Old Testament truths and making the Old Testament, and particularly parts of the Old Testament that at a first reading might feel to an average person obscure or mysterious, understandable. Um, and not only understandable, but in a way that actually makes your heart burn and makes you want to follow the Lord more and know him. Uh, you've written children's books. Is that right? That's true. I, with, if I, I find that often I cannot explain my theology to my five-year-old. And that's <laughs> an issue. That means I don't fully understand it. And so I, that is honestly, I think, one of the most unique things about you, and which is why I'm so excited to have you here. Because in our sermon series in Genesis, we have arrived at the flood. And uh, the flood, as I'm sure you know, and everyone else watching, you probably know, either gets lost in nursery rhymes 
Um, we don't really understand it, but it's cute because there's a lot of animals. Or it gets lost in really intense geological debates. Um, and it is just a part of the, these first chapters of Genesis that might seem like have the least to offer us or maybe the hardest to understand, which is why it's such a gift to have you here. And so this is going to be a little bit different this morning. It's going to be kind of a, a Zoom sermon discussion conversation. Um, and so uh, Dr. Walton will be talking and, and leading us along as we kind of get under the scriptures to try to see what is the text speaking to us, how is God talking to us through this, and then we'll be able to talk about what it means for us and what it means for you uh, who are tuning into this service. So if I can, I'll pray, and then I'll kick us off. Oh, Lord, uh, we thank you for your words, and we pray that you would open up our lips, open Dr. Walton's lips this morning to declare your praise. And Heavenly Father, would you open up our ears and open up our hearts to hear what you're saying uh, and to know you more deeply. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I guess we want to begin, uh, Dr. Walton, by just getting some context. What is the context for the flood in Genesis and in the Bible? would love to just start. How do we even approach this? I'm glad you ask it that way, Scott, because lots of people don't really approach this narrative that way. They are more interested in trying to prove the Bible true or discuss all of the ins and outs of the extent of the flood. And, uh, or they use it for, as you mentioned, little kid stories of friendly animals and things of that sort. But if we're going to get the power of God's word, we have to tune in to what the biblical narrator is doing with this story. It's not just about trying to understand this story from a geological or Sunday school story viewpoint. It's about trying to understand what the biblical narrator is doing with it. And that means we have to ask the question about how does this fit into the flow of narratives in Genesis? We can't afford to treat them as individual stories. So for the flood, we have to start back at creation, of course. And there we find that God is establishing order. Lots of us don't think about creation that way, but I've made a pretty half a career on trying to understand the idea of God's creation as most importantly establishing order in the world. And he didn't fully order the world. He created us in his image in order to have us partner with him, working alongside him, bringing order. So. God is ordering, image of God, brings us alongside him, subdue and rule. This is how the story is set up in Genesis 1. Genesis 2, there's God dwelling among us and full access of, of people to God. And so the ordered world is, is at work, God in relationship with his people. Then, of course, chapter 3, bad news. Um, we decided we'd rather do it ourselves, like any good two-year-old. We want to do it ourselves. And so the tree of wisdom, uh, take wisdom, that means you want the path to control the path to order. You want to establish order around yourself instead of around God. And so we have this idea that things went awry. We could call it the fall, of course, and theologians have done so for a long time, but I like to think of it as the lost loss of access to God's presence. Uh, and it's, it's a grab, it's a power grab, so that we can try to establish order for ourselves. 
God says, well, if that's the way you want it, but not in my backyard. And so off, off they go out into the non-ordered world. Uh, and that's chapter three, of course. And uh, then chapter four and five tracks, how did it go? So how does this work when people are establishing order for themselves? And, you know, there's a highlight reel. There's people like Enoch, you know, that, that's great. But of course, there's plenty of blunders in that, in that reel as well. And things go well, but things go wrong. It's a mixed bag. Um, and what we do find out is that it's spiraling out of control. Despite the highlights, uh, the blunders are real and it's spiraling out of control. And that brings us to the beginning of the flood story where we have violence dominating. Violence there is not to scream at you sin, although it is, it is sin, but it's to scream at you disorder. Your attempts to order the world yourself have been an utter failure. And the worst aspects of disorder uh, are there for all to see. And God's going to deal with that. And that's what the flood narrative is getting at. So when we get there and we get to the end of chapter five and the flood comes on the scene, kind of how is the flood then situate if we understand it in that context? Well, the flood is God's response to the downward spiral. You know, we get a certain perspective in the New Testament and it's an important one. But the New Testament wants to build up the idea of God's judgment. That's important for what the New Testament is doing with the story. But you can do different things with the same story. And they're all good. Uh, so if we ask, what is Genesis doing with the story? Genesis doesn't focus so much on the flood as an act of punishment or judgment. Though, again, that has value. But rather, Genesis focuses on the idea that God is going to reset order. This fits in with this order theme that started in Genesis 1. And so it's God's response to this downward spiral. God's going to push the reset button. It's a do-over. It's recreation. Now, I contend that that's what the Genesis narrator is doing with it. That's why he's telling you this story. And you can tell that because of all the parallels between the flood story and the creation story. And so in that sense, the after the, uh, the, the disorder that has reached its climax in the flood story, um, that's responded to with a return of non-order. Non-order is the waters covering everything, which we had in Genesis 1-2. And so it's a, it's a return to non-order. And that return to non-order then sets the stage for the reestablishment of order. So the, this is sort of like on your computer when you push restore default settings. Okay, that's basically what God's doing. It's a reset button for, for an ordered world. And God realizes that this isn't solving the problem. The inclinations of people are still really off the rails. But it's reestablishing order to sort of start again. So, and then just with the, the, the covenant that God makes with Noah, um, what do you see as the significance of that? And particularly some people who might have been reading Genesis realizing that a lot of what God says 
to Noah in his covenant is really similar, although it's different in some ways from what God says at the beginning in creation. Um, so I'd love your, how do we understand that? Again, you can't really tell the flood story without the Noah covenant story, because the Noah covenant story does represent the new normal. If I can use language of today, it's, it's a new normal. And so it reiterates the blessing. And so we have that continuity with creation in Genesis 1, but there's also discontinuity because there are different aspects to it. So it is a new normal. It's not the old normal, but it has a lot of similarities with the new normal. And so God's covenant with Noah is part of this reset button. Um, and so the default settings are restored, but now there's, there's a new um, updated program in place. So that's, that's the importance of that narrative. What do you think, obviously, I, I know something that you're really passionate about is how the Bible, the kind of the center character of each of these stories in the Old Testament, which is something that uh, is good for us to try to learn to practice, is that we're really thinking about what's revealed about God in these situations, mm -hmm. not focusing on the character of Noah, even though he's important. Even though Cain and Abel are important, these stories are most meant to reveal to us the character of God. So we watched God's intimacy with his creation. Like you said, he's there in Genesis 2. Um, God, obviously, his displeasure of violence and, and sin in order to restore it to default settings. Um, how do you see the flood, particularly in, in the, the reset and the, then his covenant with Noah? How do you see, what does that teach us about God? Well, as I mentioned, as the Old Testament and the whole Bible reveals God's communication to us, sometimes we talk about it revealing the nature of God. And I don't want to disagree with that, but I want to qualify it because, of course, we can only know so much of the nature of God. We can only understand so much. His ways are not our ways, etc., as, as Isaiah tells us. So we have to be careful with that. It does reveal to us sort of how he works. And I call that his plans and purposes. It's helping us to see how he works in the world. And that doesn't mean that he will always work the same way in every situation for every person. But it does mean that we can get a sense of what kind of God he is. Um, you may or may not remember that I use the uh, illustration of the syllabus. The syllabus is a professor's way of communicating his plans and purposes for the semester. You can get a little bit of a glimpse of the professor's nature and character from looking at a syllabus, but in the end, that's, it's not going to tell you too much about that, but it's to communicate plans and purposes so that we can participate in it. And so when we see God interacting with Noah, now we see what God is doing. Uh, it's, it's not just his judgment. Again, the text really doesn't give emphasis to that. It's his mercy his willingness to start over, uh, not to just uh, totally call it a failed project, uh, but to start over with Noah and to bring about rest. Uh, we remember that at the end of five, that's sort of the nature of Noah's name. Uh, this is one who's going to bring rest, Noah, Nuach, it's, it's rest. And so this is one that's going to bring that. Uh, in the Old Testament, of course, rest is not relaxation. 
It's not um, leisure. It's not naps. Uh, in the Old Testament, God's rest is not taking place in a bed or in a recliner. God's rest is on his throne, and God's rest is his rule. And so rest is the opposite of unrest. Rest uh, is the opposite of turmoil. And that's why there was all this violence in the world. There was no rest because the world had become totally a place of turmoil. But in Noah, there's the hope for rest. And that's what happens when God reasserts his rule by the flood and by the uh, reset in Noah's covenant. And so in Noah, this rest is restored. And I think that's where we get a lot of the ways that we can plug into the passage today. If you'd like me to talk about that for a little bit at this point. Yeah, I would love, I would love to go into a little bit more about that. Just before we get there, you know, we talked in Genesis 1, um, which we kicked off in really mid-June, uh, about how at the end of creation, God has rest. He takes rest on the Sabbath day. Um, and there's connections there, right? What, what connections do you see between, you know, Noah and the work God's doing in the flood, bringing about a new rest, or at least hope for rest, with that, so the rest hasn't been utterly lost, the opposite of turmoil. Do you see those playing together significantly? Sure. Rest is connected with order. Yeah. We, we find rest when we experience stability, security. Remember, when God says to Israel that he's going to give them rest on every side, that, again, that's not naps. That's, that's stability and security in the absence of turmoil. And so we experience rest. God rests among us on his throne. And therefore, he can bring us rest because his rule brings order and the diminishing of turmoil. Now, of course, since the world's not perfectly ordered, it's not perfectly at rest. But the idea that God is there on the throne to establish rest, that's his resting after creation. He orders it, and now he sits down on his throne. He's completed his work of ordering, though it's ongoing, and now he's going to rule. So that's the way that I would, would view that, and then that's the rest that he can, can bring us. God is the author of rest, just as he is the author and center of order. He is the source of rest and order, and therefore we find rest only in him. We cannot accomplish it on our own. Amen. So that, that's amazing, just picturing that in, in the way that the story is happening in Genesis and helping us understand there. It's almost like God is keeping open, uh, continuing his plan at the beginning of creation, which was thwarted when we, we did the toddler, I want to do it my way, and mm -hmm. we went out of the backyard. Um, and now God is reset to this kind of new normal, as it were, and he has a hope for rest in Noah and this covenant that his, his plans and purposes for how he's going to accomplish this. So what do we do with this? How, how does this speak to us today? I, I know you're passionate about, um, I, I think this is you, that, that it was not written to us, but it was written for us. Yeah, uh, that's been really helpful. And if again, if you're watching this and continuing to study the Bible, that's been a huge thing that Old Testament was not written to us, but it was written for us. 
So this means something for us. Um, so how, how can we think about this in 2020? Well, again, when we look at a passage like this, um, sometimes we, we want to say, well, what's God doing? You know, what, what, what's he up to there? And, uh, and we want to know what he's doing in our world, too, especially in these days of pandemic. Uh, what's, what's God up to? And uh, again, in the flood, we look at it and we see Genesis. In the context of Genesis, it's not focusing on God judging. It's focusing on God reestablishing order, a new normal. And I think that really gives us a good way of thinking through the situations that we face today. Uh, we, don't, we shouldn't be going around trying to say, oh, God's trying to punish us for this or punish us for that. Uh, this is God's judgment on a whatever. We can't know those things. Uh, we can't assess God's mind and what he's doing and why he's doing it. Uh, but at the same time, we can see that he is impacting our world through something that's fairly uncomfortable for us, a pandemic. Um, but that unrest, that turmoil that we're experiencing is leading us to assess what a new normal should look like. Normal, of course, is connected to order. Things that, that are ordered for us make it feel like it's normal. So these kinds of scenarios as uncomfortable as they are, should drive us to rethink what constitutes order in our lives? What constitutes order in our world? Uh, maybe we were inclined to find security. That's rest, that's order, okay? Maybe we're inclined to find security in economic systems, uh, in, our, in our jobs, in having everything go the way that felt good for us. That is everything ordered around ourselves. And this is causing us to rethink those things. You know, we, we mourn the loss of life. We lament the loss of jobs and businesses. We regret the loss of community and various events, graduations and weddings, all of that. But what this is causing us to do, this period of turmoil, of unrest, is to reassess our priorities is to look at how are we doing when we try to order everything around ourselves and to think again about how are we going about ordering our lives? What brings order to our lives? What are our priorities? Is God the source and center? Those kinds of questions. So I think those are the kinds of things that we can, we can think about as we consider the flood. The flood was the great disruption of order. And we are experiencing a great disruption of order. In the days of Noah, order had been disrupted by violence. That's the word the text uses. Arguably today, has our world been disrupted by greed, by power, uh, by things of that sort? Perhaps this is a chance to try to restore default settings, to reevaluate what order looks like. The offer of a new normal can be disruptive, but it also can be productive. Uh, losses have not been insignificant. You know, the flood didn't get rid of evil inclinations, and no pandemic or anything else that we face is going to be a fix for that. Uh, but we have to look at the larger picture. Uh, something like this, an event like this, as the flood did, can prompt us to 
get out of our self-imposed ruts and look at the bigger picture of what does God's order look like. I think what we have to recognize is that we cannot view ourselves and our governments and our society as the author of order. We look to them to help in all of that, but God is our source of order, and that's what we have to focus on, uh, that we do not bring order for ourselves. When It's interesting, of course, when Jesus offers rest in Matthew 11. You know, he says, for any of you who are burdened, heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And it's interesting because, of course, first of all, he doesn't mean leisure time. And we, we kind of know that when we read it. It's not leisure time. But likewise, he doesn't suggest that he's going to get rid of all the problems in your life. The rest that Jesus gives is not a rest that resolves all of our turmoil, that um, releases all of our fears. It's instead a rest that's accomplished by shifting our focus, that we don't think of order in terms of what this world gives, but we think of the order of God's kingdom, and our, our lens shifts to something more transcendent, to see order in God's kingdom, not just in sort of the order that we can cobble together for ourselves. And that's the kind of rest that Jesus offers. So in that sense, even today, we can find the rest that Jesus offers, not because all of the turmoil of the pandemic is resolved or all the economic difficulties are, are taken care of, but by gaining a, a transcendent focus, seeing beyond our circumstances to the kingdom of God and who the true source of order is. Amen. Yeah, it makes me think of that story in, in Luke where the some folks come up to Jesus and, and talk about this tower, the Tower of Siloam that had fallen over and killed a bunch of people. And they kind of want to know his take on it. And it's really interesting that Jesus responds by saying, repent and believe in the gospel, right. which seems like a non sequitur. It's like, wait, you didn't answer the question. Um, but it, it almost in some ways, he's saying the same thing. It's like, uh, that's an opportunity for you to to lay hold of these things. And I imagine, I, I think that's such a good word. And I think um, at the beginning of coronavirus, it was so intense in the way that it disrupted everything. I think we had, a, uh, I think that was happening. And I, I think for some people, maybe who've been in church for a long time, uh, there was a, there's a shaking up for us, if we call ourselves Christians, where we're thinking like, man, I've been a Christian, but I really have been establishing my life and around myself and my own order, and this is shaking it up. And I imagine, I know that there's a lot of people, maybe even some people who are watching this, who have never really thought that they've centered their lives or ordered their lives around God or experienced that rest that you just said Jesus says he offers. Um, and now are thinking, is there any other new normal apart from the old one? Because I don't want to go back to that. Um, so I think it's an amazing word uh, that we can take from this of just processing um, uh, what, a, what a new normal in Jesus looks like. I think of also that uh, beautiful little bit from Jeremiah it says, you know, stand at the crossroads, look at it and ask where the good way is. Mm -hmm. You will find rest for your souls. Well, yeah. it's interesting that, that Jesus offers rest, 
he also offers peace. Rest is is the absence of unrest. Uh, and again, he gives us a transcendent view of that. But he also gives us peace, which is the the absence of fear. And so again, it's not like there will no longer be anything to fear, but Jesus is the one who gives peace, not as the world gives, you know, John 14, John 16, uh, but he gives his peace. And that that means that we don't need to fear when times are difficult because we can find peace in Jesus who gives rest and peace. And so in, in that sense, again, we can learn through difficult times to rely on Jesus, to trust God, and to make our way through that way with a new perspective. Man, I, yeah, again, deeply applicable to today as we've had so many global crisis, crises um, as they continue to come. And what a word. Well, I, I think that's really, really uh, beautiful and, and applicable. Um, guess I would love to just hear from you as, as we kind of go into the rest of our service. Um, for us, just wanting to grow in our appreciation of the Bible and, and right now with Genesis and just for, for people who are on a journey of maybe really figuring out that the Old Testament isn't just all weird and that it actually is a source of communing and meeting the living God. Um, how, would you encourage, how would you encourage us just as we continue this process People, of course, have been drawn to the New Testament because there we get the story of Jesus and what he did for us. Uh, but remember, the Bible is not just a story of, this might sound heretical, it's not just a story of salvation. We're so grateful for the salvation that Christ provided and so aware of what it cost for him to do that, although we can't fathom it. But the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3 with the introduction of sin. The Bible starts in Genesis 1 with God as the one who brings order and who wants to be present with us, who wants to dwell among us. And that's what the story of the Bible is. It's salvation that allows that to happen at the level that, that God has always wanted. But when you end up in Revelation 21 with the uh, new creation, it doesn't say a lot about us being the redeemed ones. It says a lot about God dwelling with us, which is what God has always wanted. And so when we read the Old Testament, we get a perspective that helps us recognize how God has worked through history and through the covenant and through his people to come to the point where he dwells among us. He dwelt among Israel at the tabernacle and temple. That's why he made the covenant with them so that he could come and dwell among them. And then we have the incarnation where Christ comes and dwells among us in the flesh. And so the word becomes flesh. And then we have the great commission where he says, yes, go into all the world. But then also the last word before he goes up, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then 50 days later at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and indwells his people and we are the temple. And so we move through this whole sequence, uh, and the Old Testament is all those first steps, setting the stage for God's desire to dwell among his people. And I think that we miss that 
if we only tell the story of Jesus in the New Testament, we get a lot of important stuff and we see what Jesus did for us. But we see the larger heart of God when we read it in the context of the Old Testament. Amen. Well, I think that's an amazing place to finish. Uh, would you pray for us just as we head into the rest of our service? I'd love to. Lord, help us to learn these important lessons. It's so easy to be focused on ourselves, to feel our discomfort, to uh, experience turmoil, to feel fear. Help us to look beyond, to transcend ourselves, to look to you as the source and uh, center of order and rest and peace. And so we pray that you'll help us to do that as we keep our eyes on your kingdom and seek to be your people as you dwell in us and among us and do your work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.